For those of you who are a fan of the AVP and attended the events like I did here in Milwaukee at Bradford Beach back in the mid-80s through the 90s during the sports heyday, the gentleman who just did our intro prior to this needs no introduction. It's the one and only MC of the AVP back then, Sam Lagana. Let's get started with Sam Part 1. All right, Sam Lagana. You were a big part of my how I fell in love with the sport in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin as a kid, as the MC in the late 80s and 90s, as uh, you did for all my friends there. I'd love to hear about your background, where you grew up, sports you played, what kind of influence your parents had on you, and how you became the uh, legend that you are today, Sam. So let's, let's start from the top. Thanks, Scott. It's so good to be with you. I feel like I'm I'm sitting here at my house, but I feel like I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin with you in the middle of winter. <laughs> You're on the stage so, at Bradford right now, Sam. Let's hear it. Yeah, I was ready for Bradford Beach, had a little dinner from, uh, you know, from uh, the cl- the Calderon Club, and then we could go mm. over to uh, Moose Beast, Major Ghoul's Beast. Oh, right? yeah. Those were those spots. Those were the spots in our day when we were back there. We had great times on Bradford Beach. Scott, you and all those fine folks in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and people coming up from Chicago and down from Green Bay and then from Madison, and they made that event so spectacular, beside the fact that our friends in the Miller Brewing Company, you know, had invested so much in the Association of Volleyball Professionals, and uh, they, that, they felt that that was an important place for beach volleyball, and we had so many great events there, national televised events, and incredible stuff but for me you know like you it it's kind of just showing up and bumping into something and i was fortunate to grow up you know off the beaches of, of pacific palisades which is where state beach is and yeah. uh, the volleyball at state beach was probably better there than anywhere else certainly better than in the south bay and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know to be able to be in that environment and, and watch guys like Gene Selznick and Ron Von Hagen and and Ron Lang and you know George and 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 you know Mike between Sorrento Muscle Beach and State Beach we used to ride our bikes back in those days down Pacific Coast Highway there wasn't a bike path okay. so you'd go down and you'd play volleyball on these beaches and 
Sorrento was named for a little grill that was right there that was called the Sorrento Grill. Otherwise, it was just a parking lot that had once been a beach club that was taken down, and then Sorrento Grill was there, and that's why Sorrento is called what it is. And State Beach is actually a very long swath, two and a half miles of beach, one of the largest parking lots in Southern California, but it's named because Will Rogers once owned that, and it was Will Rogers State Beach. And so that's really kind of a, the pinnacle. The first world championship of beach volleyball was played, played right there, and it's iconic in that it was this really cool old lifeguard stand that then had a, uh, you know, like a little snack shack in it. And so I grew up up above, the, above that and would just kind of roll down to the beach as a kid uh, because that was what we did, right? And then we'd go down to the Muscle Beach at the pier and, and watch guys and play there and then play ourselves. So that's like, you know, you just kind of roll down to a beach and you get excited. And my parents would take us to the beach or allow us to go to the beach. You know, you'd walk, ride your skateboard back in those days. Yep. And uh, that's how it kind of all came out. And so for me, growing up, uh, you know, you play volleyball there, you play volleyball over at the park, but I played basketball and football tennis my mom played a lot of tennis so that was kind of my first decent sport where i could actually play but the guys i played with were getting better than i was and i wasn't getting better at that <laughs> and so i kind of moved on from that those guys wound up on the atp tour when we became adults so they they actually had a legitimate case of being good and and uh you know i i wound up finding out that i had an extra lumbar in my rotor vertebra and so continuing to play sport at a competitive level when my back and body wasn't stable kind of slowed me down for a little while but I could always play volleyball at the park because there was no real contact mm -hmm. we play two men in, in the gym and we go to the beach and play two men and you know you're fortunate the only, th the only part of your body that was getting pounded was you know if you were in the gym jumping up and down so it was a great <laughs> sport for me to play and I loved setting the ball. That was the thing I always loved to do is try to get that ball to come out clean so they didn't have any rotation because I always thought that was so cool. And Mingus, I remember as a young man, Mingus screaming at people if there was rotation when he would play with <laughs> Greg Lee. You know, like those guys were purists. They, and they wanted you to bump the ball. So you had to get that ball out clean. And Stokey had good hands. And, you know, Roger Clark had really good hands. And Ricky Ludis had really good hands. Those Bruins, baby. Those Pally yeah, Bruins, for that matter, too. They were Dolphins, you know, weren't they? They were. You know, everybody kind of went to Pally High. We had Steve Sammons. We had a lot of Dave Saunders. A lot of great people that went on to play for national team and, and stuff like that. And then, of course, this guy named Chris Smith who went to Loyola. Um, he was pretty good. I don't know why he changed his name to Sinjin. He and his brother Andy, you know, they were pretty good. And... Uh, there were a lot of good characters and good guys down there. Wally Goodrick and... Didn't Don Shaw and Chris Marlowe attend there, too? And they were really well, good yeah, basketball guys, players? And they were basketball players. In fact, there was a sign, Scott, in the gym at Pally High in the 70s that said, Palisades High Basketball produces more All-American volleyball players than any <laughs> volleyball program in the country. And those guys all won the 1969 City Championships of Los Angeles against a guy named Greg Lee from Reseda High. That's Mo, right. Uh, Big Daddy Don Shaw, Freddie Sturm, um, Jay Hanseth, 
those guys were core guys on that 69 Pally High City Championship basketball team. I didn't know Sturm played the lefty uh, and then became the, the, he won a bunch of tournaments and then also became the coach of the U.S. national team and and coached up at Stanford, huh? I didn't know that. Co-coached with Big Daddy. He was a co-coach with Big Daddy. It was pretty cool. But yeah, that's how I got into the game and and tried to work my way up to court eight, A, which they didn't really want you to play on (laughs) if you didn't have the skills. And so, you know, you might get one game and then you got bounced over to court 10 or 12 or wherever they threw me, you know, the Grimmies. Interesting. Here's an interesting sidebar about that time. The lifeguard tower there is Tower 18. So that was the beach. Okay. And um, we'd go down there and stay, we'd surf or play in the water and then play volleyball. But the lifeguard there was a guy named Greg Bonin. Greg Bonin. B-O-N-A-A-N. And Greg went to my church. Uh, Corpus Christi, which is where Big Daddy grew up, too. Okay. And so Bonin watched everybody on the beach. Well, he was bored at times, so he would write. And so he kept writing and writing while he was watching all this mumbo-jumbo going on down at State Beach in Tower 18. And lo and behold, his writing led to this small television show that did not get much notoriety called Baywatch. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I think I've watched those all uh, probably uh, a million times, but don't tell anyone. So that's why you would always get these volleyball scenes in Baywatch because, you know, you had had Greg Bonin who was making sure that these guys weren't drowning after playing volleyball or surfing right there. So it was pretty cool. But that's, that's a little bit of history and how I got interested into it. And I uh, just loved to play, but I couldn't at times. And uh, so coach said, hey, why don't you go over there and announce the game? Basketball coach. And that led to the volleyball coach saying the same thing. And who knew in high school that this would have worked out? The coach just knew that because I was practicing, I knew what I was talking about. And boom, now I'm announcing, you know, basketball and volleyball in high school. And probably weren't that many people doing that back in that day. And uh, I got to college and tried out for the volleyball team. My back still wasn't stable. And uh, coach said, "I want you to go over there and announce the game." Okay. And that's that's how my my passion for the game and you know kind of erupted. So it's kind of cool. And you had that extra uh, vertebrae, but you also had that extra something in your uh, lungs in your dialogue, and you took it and ran with it uh, after yeah, it was- the sports career ended. Yeah, it was pretty good. You know, you get out of college, and uh, a guy named Kevin Cleary became our volleyball coach at, at Loyola Marymount. Okay. And um, that's when they were just kind of getting this thing called the Association of Volleyball Professionals started. And uh, he's really the guy that sort of said, hey, would you be interested in announcing, because I was already announcing volleyball, and, and hanging out with the guys and sometimes playing. We built a beach court at Loyola Marymount when I was a student, and we'd play up there. And, you know, I had, one of my roommates was on the volleyball team, and and um, so we'd just kind of hang out. And he finally said, hey, would you be interested in uh, in uh, maybe announcing on tour? And that's how that kind of all got going. And I studied marketing promotions and public relations, and they needed some help in that area. And it was all seasonal at that time. It wasn't really year-round, so I got to help out and do that. So that's how it all got going back in the early days of the AVP, 
undenied worldwide. <laughs> it gives me shivers when I hear you say that. Uh, and that was <laughs> what, approximately 85, Sam? Yeah. It was like back then, that's right, when I was graduating, you know, just finishing, getting ready to finish school and stuff. And uh, was able to put that into work and, and kind of work in public relations, and marketing, promotions. So it's kind of cool, you know, making posters and rolling them up, sticking them in tubes and mailing them to bars and, <laughs> and calling, um, seriously, and, and calling, uh, and we, do that, we did that in the spring, we did that for a number of years until, you know, we were able to hire more people and stuff, but calling, you know, newspapers to come out and do interviews and getting pictures and sending them out to places and trying to create a buzz and we'd come up with some strategies of how to do it. We had a great team of people. And one of the owners of this company, a guy named Jack Kagoma, uh, was a Japanese guy. And uh, he lived technically in Fresno, but he had an apartment in L.A. And he was a partner with a company in, in this company called Group Dynamics okay. at the time. And we got him, Jack Beautifish, who originally was partners with a guy named Mike O'Hara. And Mike mm. O'Hara had started Group Dynamics with Beautifish, and they were doing track and field events. And then they, because of O'Hara's background in volleyball, they started picking up a little volleyball. And then Jack Adoma, uh came aboard. I think he brought an infusion of money and also some big knowledge from the Japanese uh, perspective on how to do things. And they hired a really good team. And the Carsons were there. And uh, Craig Elledge was there. Cindy uh, Rubin was there. There was, and we had a bunch of people in those early days in that office. Uh, Jeffy. Wilson was doing operations, um, and Matt Gage was kind of the guy. Matt Gage was like the, um, at that time, this young, awesome, really cool guy, really cool guy who was like this genuine player who had this great connection with people, but he was such a good soul uh, that it was, it was awesome, and he kind of kept things together as we would get this thing launched up, kind of as a tournament director, and super consultant and and then you you have a buddy named Bob Bogelsang but Bogey would show up on Fridays <laughs> to collect his check and try to get it deposited yeah, yeah know, I instead of it. waiting him for, we don't, he, I, always, I do remember this by the way thinking about that office <laughs> Bogey would show up it was 2601 Ocean Park Boulevard in Santa Monica yep. and uh, Bogey would show up like almost every Friday to pick up a check before the tournament uh, weekend from the last weekend to make sure you could get that deposit. Didn't wait for it to get mailed to him. So we never mailed Bogey's check. He always came and got it. Uh, but it was funny. The Financial News Network was just starting and they were right next door. Uh, so the Prime Ticket was just getting going and we were partnering with those guys, uh, which became Fox Sports. So it was, it was a pretty exciting time. You know, ESPN was just getting going. Uh, so we had a pretty good time trying to get all these things put together, grow this sport, great corporate partners and Miller Brewing Company and Jose Cuervo. And uh, and then, you know, Kevin Cleary was the president of the AVP at that time. But I think the board included, you know, Mike Dodd, Sinjin, uh, just some uh, really solid people who really wanted to promote the game up and give themselves a chance to, to thrive it was a great time early in the early 80s mid 80s and i believe kevin was running that as the president right out of the house he yeah. grew up in in that uh 
nice house that his family had there in um, in Manhattan and, Beach. Yeah, I mean, he was yeah he was president of the AVP, so he was running the AVP side of the business, and they contracted with Group Dynamics to stage the events and the promotions. Um, and then eventually, of course, uh, the AVP uh, moved over to from there. The AVP moved over to a law firm that had a marketing branch called Management Plus, which Leonard Romano, who was kind of of counsel at that, you know, in the early days, Mm -hmm. was a board guy and was of counsel. And uh, then that moved to his office and um, things were operating out of that office over there, Management Plus. Jane, gosh, what was Jane's last name? Jane worked on this project. She was an attorney with him. She was highly successful. And she married a guy named Henry Harry Usher, and Harry Usher was the number two guy behind Peter Ubaroff in the '84 Olympic Games, and so he became involved with us with Management Plus and kind of putting things together. Unfortunately, Harry passed away, but um, Jane did a great job with it. And then one night, under John Stevenson's tutelage, it was like when the Baltimore Colts went to Indianapolis. One night, everything moved to Culver City out of management plus. And, in in uh, the back of a semi at 12, 12 yeah, midnight. Yeah. I don't know if it was a semi or a U-Haul, you know, a 10-year-old. <laughs> or a, or a station but, wagon. But it all moved. And, you know, Matt Gage got a formal office and a really nice uh, office space over in from Century City over. He got one in Culver City rather than having to work out of, a, of like, a back storage lot and and uh, <laughs> we had good offices, and that's when I started kind of coordinating more of the communications and PR again. And that was uh, that was a crazy time. But, uh, it was crazy. And then, so now we were on our own, and AVP properties started, and uh, you know we were operating all on our own, the board and hiring. They hired uh, a guy named Jeff Dankworth, another guy named Bob as executive directors, and then Janie Marks was a marketing person, and they gave her the opportunity to be executive director for a while. And then Billy Berger, I think, got a run at it in marketing. So it was a a wild time. Kent Steffes was coming online at that time as a player. Yeah, that young kid out of Pally High, your uh, alumni there with – with uh, what Adam Unger, I think, and then Matt yeah, Unger followed later, and they had that great Matteo. Yeah, and you had, you had Karch coming back to the tour, making uh, making his presence known. Red was coming back into the the beach game. Pat Powers coming back into the beach game because they'd all kind of started to finish off in the late eighties. Uh, they were finishing off their time with the USA team, and. Uh, we're getting back into playing the beach. So it was, it was a pretty dynamic time, Scott. You know, as we rolled into the 90s, it was it was pretty exciting. Gosh, I uh, I fell in love with the sport in 88 as a 15-year-old kid at Bradford Beach when you guys were there and loved watching Johnny the Steve and Powers in his Laycock Sportif uh, biker shorts just <laughs> dominating people, blocking and hitting like I could never dream of uh and then meeting Hav and Dodd in the finals that was uh and then you on the microphone that was a lethal combination you guys were just uh I can't put into words how big of an impact that had on me and my friends here in Milwaukee as kids at that time and teenagers and uh I can never thank you enough 
Oh, Scott, you know, it's so funny. You know, you, you, you start to look at the evolution of beach volleyball. So, you know, these like these startup companies like Club and Side Out and mm-hmm. Massimo and all this. And then all of a sudden, La Coke Sportif shows up, right? And, you know, they were like tennis togs, nice stuff, country clubby <laughs> kind of stuff. And so we're getting all these sweats that are like really cool. And, you know, we like body glove and all this other stuff. But now all of a sudden, it was like a big time tennis stuff you saw at Wimbledon on TV are being given to us. And then they signed, you know, Pat Powers, and they got those shorts you talked about, the yeah. spandex, you know, whatever became the first phase yeah, of spandex. Yeah, those biker shorts, yep. Oh, my gosh. It was unbelievable. You're not going to wear them. And then they wanted us all to wear them, like the staff. And it was like, you've got to be kidding. We don't even know how Powers is doing this. Yeah. And, That's... Um, and now to think that those things, you know, like Lululemon made them the rage, right? Or whoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny you know, how it comes in those days, circle. Right. And so, you know, you still had all these really hot brands, but we'd go back to places like Milwaukee with you guys, and just to be in those cities and then see you guys buying the same clothes, and you started to realize, like, this is cool. And I remember going to Disneyland uh, with my wife, uh, who worked at Disneyland, um, and was from Orange County. I remember going to Disneyland and seeing all the people wearing club and side out and Massimo and shorts and, you know, fanny packs around their waist with their, with their volley shorts on. And that's when <laughs> I knew we had kind of made it. And then we get to Milwaukee and you guys and play, you know, places like Chicago and everybody's wearing this gear. And you start to realize, I think we're on to something here, you know? And, uh, but boy, every year in Milwaukee was so good because we always hit a festival, you know, whether it was the Italian Fest or whether it was the, the Reggae Fest or Summer Fest or whatever it was. One year they were And then I think they also had the big circus parade there all the time the same weekend and you guys you couldn't park anywhere. (laughs) Not only park, you couldn't drive to the beach. Yeah. You had to like go all the way up around and come back down a long way. We didn't have cell phones with with uh maps on them. (laughs) Yeah. You know you wound up at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee looking like, (laughs) where are the Panthers? Where am I? getting lost up there um those are great days but you guys had a good thing going i always remember when my girls were like i don't know 10 12 i told my wife i said we got to go to milwaukee this summer and see the circus parade and we'll go to chicago and her brother lived in chicago but we gotta go see the circus parade and i call up to find out when the circus parade and they're like oh we're not doing it anymore it's <laughs> over I think it was the greatest parade. It was like all the great circuses, Circus Vargas, Ringling Brothers, all the big circuses around the country sent all of their top carts and show carts. And I remember watching it one day. I think I was late for work. I told Gage I got lost. And I think (laughs) I just watched the parade, you know, because who was going to show up early in the morning, you know, on on a Saturday morning in Milwaukee, but... Or play well, Frogger trying to pass days. in front of the uh, elephants and whatever else were out there, right? Yeah. You know, the other weird thing is we got to work out at uh, the Milwaukee Athletic Club, which was kind of a few blocks away from the Hyatt where we stayed. And I remember they had a swimming pool, and so we could go over there, we could work out, lift weights, and go in the pool. The only difference was 
in LA, any pools in Los Angeles, everybody always wore bathing suits. There? No. That was an option. <laughs> so you saw some scary, scary it people. It was a little different, right? It was a little different. <laughs> that, that, that was just a different experience for a bunch of young men, right? Oh, so. I believe it. That cracks me up. Uh, do you remember the name Rudy Papco by chance? All operations, Rudy? Yeah, Rudy, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. He's the greatest guy. He just had his birthday, man. Yeah. It was just his birthday. And he ran all the, making sure the tour got to where it was going with all the semis yeah. every week and everything else. And Yeah, he took over after Duffy Wilson. And he, he knew Duffy Wilson, I think, from Copper Mountain. Because in the offseason, Duffy worked up at Copper Mountain doing operations. And so did Rudy. And so did, like, Jack and... Maybe Dave even worked up there, but a bunch of these guys worked Copper Mountain in the winter, and they all got hooked up, and they would work on the tour. And then Rudy, it's Rudy Papaka. He lives in Scottsdale nowadays. Was living in Temecula for a while, but he's still driving rigs across the country, doing big TV shows. So are some of the other guys, like Pete, Dave Layton. A lot of those guys wound up in the big production units, and as Rudy did with. Um, you know what he does and is managing a bunch of stuff and yeah they had they did a great thing i mean we went from one truck to like three big rigs and a trailer and matt dodge trailer for all the t-shirts and everything it was amazing those guys and first of all it's amazing that we didn't get in trouble with the department of transportation because <laughs> these guys would work you know 7 a.m to 7 p.m and then load up in these rigs and drive you know from milwaukee to la and then la to belmar beach and we weren't really too good about designing a tour that was making a lot of sense. Like, oh, if we're on the East Coast, we should stay there. Logically, you know? we should go to this city next. Instead, we're yeah, going no, across no, no, country. No, we got to get back and go to Manhattan Beach, and then we'll go up to Michigan, and then let's go down over here to you know San Diego, and then let's go over here. The only time we were really smart was at spring break. We would go to Florida, and then from Florida, we might stop um, – you South know, like Padre, yeah, we we pull that off, and then we get to California and, and and roll a California, and then we would hit the Midwest. And of course, at the worst time of the year, we would head east in the Midwest in the middle of the humidity, so that Mike Whitmarsh back in those days could overheat with the Whitmobile. Yeah, it was just incredible. Taking IVs, we had we finally had to order like IV guys all the time. <laughs> so we figured out he just needed more sodium. Correct. I think we figured that out in Fort Lauderdale. I think that's where they finally figured it out was like after two years, it, it came to like, we figured it all out in like Fort Lauderdale. Some <laughs> paramedic was like, I think, you know, I th it was like the guy was a boy scout. I think you just need to take some salt before you play. It was, it was pretty crazy. It was the simplest uh, solution, and uh, it finally took something like that to find yeah. the, uh, what what cured him of that. And God rest his soul. God rest his soul. That was a great man. That was a great guy. Yeah, without getting into details on that, uh, I I don't. He was one of the few guys on tour that I don't think uh, anybody had a bad word to say about. And uh, that was a very sad story for I think anyone that knew him or was a fan when we heard about uh when he took his life to put it mildly yeah really a sad day sad day yeah another yeah. sad part of that i'll tell you this another sad part of that story that it continued 
was the reception for his memorial was at Junior Seau's restaurant down in Mission Valley in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And Junior got up and talked about how, you know, he, he couldn't understand how Mike did this. They were friends. And then, unfortunately, Junior took his own life a couple years later. Uh, just a really sad, sad thing. Yeah, it really guys great guys. makes you realize that, uh, you know, your your mind and your heart is just like a, a bone or a ligament or a tendon. If it's under undue duress for enough time, uh, at some point it's going to crack or break. And uh, I think that opened yeah. a lot of our eyes up to how vulnerable we all are to stuff yeah. like that, regardless of who we are in life. Yeah, and losing Johnny the Steve was a tough one as well. You know, another another guy who put his heart and soul as president of the AVP and into into this game and gave it his all as a as a champion player and coach. So Yeah, well I think that's awesome that you mentioned that about Rudy. I've gotten to know him a little bit over the Lance Lee's uh, old school volleyball uh group and uh you know gage has mentioned how lucky he was to have such a great crew with guys like you as the mc and then uh rudy running the show and every weekend it was like it was like being a tour manager of a band like van halen in the 70s every week you had to be at a a show and set up and without them there there is no show uh papco running the and getting the tour to the next city there is no uh AVP, and uh, I think that's awesome that you gave credit to what those guys did behind the scenes that they don't get enough credit for. Rudy Papaco and that whole team, Dave Layton was his, like his wingman, uh, you know, Jack and, and Pete and Roger and... Rodney Grove and Jennifer Rose. You know, and then there were the women that helped us that were, were part of that team too, Pam. And, um, you know, there's so many different people that went into this uh, you know, organization to make this successful, to make sure the players had all the things they needed as we continued to grow. It was it was an amazing time, to be honest with you, Scott. You know, people pitching in in ways that were extraordinary to help grow the game. You know, as Gary, as Gary Sato always says, grow the game, grow the game. <laughs> and these people did that all the time. Uh, so you also then worked on the Jose Cuervo tour, which was so incredibly popular. Those three events they had each year, hundred grand for first place. What were some of uh, the highlights of your time working on that tour and memorable stories, including, uh, I'm sure, uh, some of them will involve the, the mighty have. <laughs> yeah, you know, those, those, were, those were amazing. So there came a point in time in the management operations where when the ADP had broken off, um, you know, in, in terms of it broke into itself under group dynamics and then it broke away from group dynamics and, and as I said, Management Plus kind of managed it as the AVP and then into the AVP. But as it was moving from that Management Plus into it, Cuervo said, listen, we want to run our own show. We, we just want to run these three events and we want to have an invitational only. And, and of course, the, if you really think of it, the AVP was a players union, right? And so the, the players negotiated that they wanted to have qualifier and all that kind of stuff. But the Cuervo really wanted to do just eight teams in a special format with this mega money, you know, $100,000 for eight teams and bonus pools and, and really go over the top with the size. I mean, they would put more 
um, they would put more like special stuff into the event. Like you might see these walls of speakers, but there were only two speakers that worked. But they bought like or rented, you know, thirty speakers to make it look bigger and better. Uh, it was amazing, and it was kind of the foresightfulness of a guy named Steve Goldstein, who was the marketing guy for Jose Cuervo, which was a, is owned actually. The, that was the brand. The company was Hubline, which was based up in Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, they had retained uh, a company in New York called Allen Taylor Communications, and those guys between Steve Goldstein, Alan Taylor's company, which was a guy named Howard Dolgan, and us, we would collaborate on how we could get things done. And Goldstein retained the Carsons, Kathy and Paul, to produce the on-site venues. And they did that, and um, D. Rambo worked on these programs. There was just a good crew. They had a separate crew just for these three events. And... Uh, it just went over the top, you know, and they would blast it out with money and the money they put into it. And Cuervo did a great job, and the marketing side was so, so crazy. And Steve Goldstein's passion, and God rest his soul, last summer, Steve passed away from brain cancer uh, in Florida. And um, he, was a, he was just an extraordinary soul that did so much for the game that never got any credit uh, by by pushing this gold crowd. So Clearwater Beach, Boulder, Colorado, and Santa Cruz were the three stops. Yep. And just mega events where they would just put infused money and infused promotion time and energy into these things, Scott. And I don't know if you ever made it to a gold crown, but for us to kick the season off in Clearwater Beach, and, and I would think there would be 50,000 people there for the, for those two days it was a two-day event so we would end pretty much on saturday they liked the, the cuervo people wanted to end with a party so keep that in mind <laughs> end with a party so it was friday play and in this round robin kind of format elimination and then saturday play and we would end saturday afternoon it would just be a blowout and they were very collaborative asking you know me and others they were involved in the promotional side of the build. What do you think we should do? How should we do it? Working with television, they really bought the first big amount of TV time. And uh, the party was even bigger. And maybe you were, you alluded to that. that yeah, I've heard some of the stories. Man. Yeah, that very kind and gentle man known Tim, Tim Hovland from Playa del Rey, California. Yeah. Well, Tim, if anybody had never seen him play, he was a fairly aggressive player <laughs> who cheetah. had a little bit more energy than, than some and uh, had the fire in his belly like probably no other. Uh, maybe that was fueled by the Mountain Dew that he was drinking, like a six-pack <laughs> before every match. But uh, he, he would just get the crowd going, and he was... You know, he was Hulk Hogan on the of the of the beach volleyball world, right? He like people loved that guy because he was an entertainer. We had a lot of characters, you know, Sinjin to a degree. While he was, all these guys, while great volleyball players, had some character qualities that were just unique. And Randy with his Kong block, and Sinjin with his precision play, and you know, fancy name and. Uh, you know, Mike, God, at those times, that was kind of the big four at that time when we were getting those gold crowns started. 
And then you had guys that were coming up like a, like a Brian Lewis who had this fire and he was a little bit shorter than those guys, you know, not much really, but not, but not short on confidence. <laughs> no, no, had a lot of energy himself and, and, uh, you know, Ricky Ludy's, you know, gold medal setter, uh, kind of an Adonis on the beach. Uh, it's just so many characters, Johnny to Steve, you know, I remember Johnny to Steve playing with, with Whitmarsh. I mean, phenomenal, phenomenal Karch and Kent, you know, but those gold crowns really would rock and there's pressure and intensity, but that party was a big release. And, uh, I remember one time, you know, Tim Hovland really would enjoy the moment of competition, but would enjoy being with the fans. I mean, these guys were great with being with the fans and they would afterwards have the fans in a party kind of environment. We, Cuervo would bring out rock bands and put them on the stage and we'd have these big parties right on the center court. Um, it was very, very rare that Cuervo tequila would flow at these parties, but once in a while. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and I, I'm not going to, you know, it, I'm going to say it was, it was a good time, but Hoff being the great performer and entertainer that he is would get on stage with the band and, and play with the band. Well, I, I will tell you this story. It's, Kind of funny. I would always wear tennis shoes and socks on the on the stage. And <laughs> honestly, some of the guys would give me a really hard time. Well, the reason I wore nobody ever said why do you wear it. They just gave you grief for doing it. Right? Then, why are you wearing those? T-? You know, they would never say why are you wearing those tennis shoes. Just look at you. Look like a you know a weakling wearing those tennis shoes. Da, 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 da. Well, the stages you could rip your feet apart so easily you wouldn't even know. Right. And all those stage lights and everything else we, there, right? Everything, the, the screws, the bolts, the rivets, the metal, everything. So, Hob happened to be one of those people that would once in a while give me a hard time about wearing shoes. Hob comes up on the stage to perform with the band one night and rips, basically, <laughs> and if you can imagine, guys in volleyball have pretty callous feet, yeah. right? You need that to, to perform at the best, but so... They've got pretty callous feet. Well, Hav hits that stage, and he got caught on, like, one of the stage lips or something, and he wasn't wearing any shoes, and it just ripped that callus off the bottom of his foot, but, like, more than the callus. And only as Tim Hovland could do, he removes his shirt in a very ceremonial fashion. Rips it like off, basically. It. Yes, yeah. And uh, and then ties it around his foot, <laughs> part of it, and the other part of it he ties around his head like a headband. And the next thing I know, I'm see- finding this T-shirt on the tour available for sale. A picture of Hob <laughs> looking, and this is really where the Hob showed that he was the mighty Hob. Um, but that that was a great moment. You know, he was. He just loved to be with the people and entertain, and, you know, sometimes he would even want to have, you know, there might be a guy that was 6'9", 350 pounds, like named Tiny, who was the head security guard, who Hav might think would be a good idea to maybe wrestle with him. He might have been joking uh, with Tiny, but Tiny made it come to a stop fairly quickly. So uh, it was always good. And, and Hob would always invite me to introduce and announce what he thought was going to be a wrestling match with Tiny <laughs> when he would have it. 
So Hav loved the pageantry at that time. I, I can only imagine as a real estate agent if he, he could have somebody. And now welcome your real estate agent, Tim Hovland. No, I don't know. I, I never bought property from but I but I would think that in the South Bay, that's why he's so successful. I Patch heard uh, he was Tim singing, uh, well, that was one of his favorite bands, too. I heard he was doing uh, the Rolling Stones uh, tune that uh, that night when he ripped his toe open, and he just didn't, didn't fail. Yeah. You know, he, he had a song that he preferred to be introduced to. Uh, he didn't necessarily like that we just would play certain music and pump up music leading into the finals. Tim wanted walk-up music before walk-up music was popular, even in the big leagues. <laughs> and his song was Sympathy with the Devil from the Rolling Stones. And that was his motivation song, That uh, his walk-up. But yeah, Tim Tim probably was the inventor. Tim may have been the inventor of walk-up music in sports. In all sports, yeah. Yeah, I, I, somebody should give him credit for that. Put that in the Hall of Fame. Like, have a whole section of Tim Hovland creating walk-ups, walk-up music. Oh my gosh! Um, you know, it's funny. I I asked Pat Powers about uh, you know the time he won the Cuervo, the one that he won with Johnny the Steve and Clearwater for the first one over Hov and Dodd. Um, and I don't know if it was that one in '88 or the one that um, Powers and. Uh, uh, Brian Lewis won I think it was in 92 and uh, they they paid Tiny, the guy you talked about <laughs> that was yeah. like a, a huge dude that weighed 300 pounds to protect them that night from Hovland and uh, uh, Hovland said if I beat Tiny in a wrestling match, I'm hanging out with you guys the rest of the night and Powers said, believe it or not Hovland being the uh, Southern California uh, athlete of the year back in the day, he beat yes. us. And he, he uh, we, we had, in, I love what Powers said. He said, never bet against the Hov. I'm glad that somebody has a different finish. I sort of remember Tiny like sort of picking Hov up and just dropping him down. <laughs> but, uh, but if everybody wants to hear the other side where Hov beat the 350 pound Tiny, uh, I'll go with that too, but uh, <laughs> I, I I I don't drink as I don't drink that much, so I sort of have a different memory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, classic! I love it. This concludes part one of our interview with the one and only Sam Lagana. Can't thank him enough for taking the time to do this interview. It brought back some of the best memories of my life when I was a teenager, going to the AVP here in Bradford Beach and I fell in love with the sport because of the players. Matt Gage is the AVP tournament director and Sam is the MC playing amazing music and keeping us entertained during rain delays and between matches. Man is one of a kind. Before I let you go here, I want to give credit to the musicians that we use for our podcast. The opening track is from the band Sponge. The song title is Rainin' off the album Rotting Pinata. Closing track is from the band Magna Carta Cartel. Song title is That It's Already Too Late off the album Good Morning Restrained. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for part two with Sam.
Thank you.